Stand by for a start. Racing. At $210,000 at Isella Done. Well done. Hello and welcome to episode 19 of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. Joining me today as we continue to make our way through yearling sales season while the Group 1 action fires up in Melbourne and Sydney, we've got FBAA member Jim Clark from Clark Bloodstock and a special guest. Group one winning trainer, and I reckon he's racing's answer to Russell Crowe, Bjorn Baker. Gentlemen, good afternoon. Thanks for joining me on the shortlist. Yeah, thanks, Sharky. Uh, great to be on, and, and good morning, Jim. He's in West Australia at the moment for the Perth sale, and I appreciate the compliment of Russell Crowe. Of course, he's the only Kiwi we're happy to give you, blokes. Yeah, no love lost there with uh, with old Russ, is there? He seems to be a case of, well, we don't want him. You can have him. Um, what about the looks department? He's sort of a rugged, handsome kind of guy. We, You're a bit more like a cuddly teddy bear, I reckon. Oh, I don't know if I'm even that. But, uh, no, he's a, a remarkable man. Of course, uh, we know him very well through cricket too because he's got a couple of famous cousins, including the, the late Martin Crowe, who was one of NZ's best ever. Yeah, he certainly kept the good one there, some might say. Jim, how's WA treating you? You're in the Margaret River at the moment, I believe. Yeah, great. Thanks, Shark. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I'm over here just for a few days with the family for a break. And, of course, got the Perth Yearling Sale on uh, later this week. So thought I'd tie in a short holiday with another horse sale. You haven't – you you're telling me off air you haven't done any surfing while you've been over there this week. So I assume then you're staying um, well hydrated and, and just – availing yourself of some of those beautiful Margaret River wines? Yeah, too many sharks for me over here. <laughs> no pun intended. But, um, you know, I've been to a few wineries and, and taken the kids to the beach, but we haven't gone in too far beyond our knees. Mm, yeah, fair enough too. They're, uh, they're hungry over there. Hey, before we get into the background of, I guess, the working relationship together, you gentlemen, have you found the sales season so far? We've had... Uh, Magic Millions Gold Coast sale, obviously. We've had Karaka. Everyone got back to New Zealand. Well, a lot of people got back there. Some, uh, the weather precluded their attendance. And we've had classic sale as well. What have you made of the season so far, Jim? How's it been as far as competitive buying is concerned? Have you been able to get the horses you wanted? Yeah, it's been, um, I guess, so far, the three major sales. Magic Millions held up very well. The market was pretty well on par with with last year, we bought a similar number of horses, Bjorn and myself, and um, and uh, then we rolled through to New Zealand. First time we were able to get back there for the yearling sale for a few years, so that was fantastic to be able to do that. Um, we bought a few less horses there this year, but um, probably you know at around the same sort of average. Uh, and then Classic, um, a few less there as well. And the market came back a little bit there. I think that's probably due to the fact that that sale is really more targeted towards the, the trainers and syndicators that, that are offering shares to to clients at sort of 5 10 and 20% rather than the bigger higher-end buyers that take, you know, significant chunks of, of forces. So um, I, overall, I think the, the market itself has held up well in terms of, of getting um, repeat and new investment. It's, a, it's probably a little bit more sticky this year than last year, and that's obviously due to the economy more than anything else. 
Do you think we'll see more of a separation, particularly around, you know, the sales as we walk through that they have to have that, I guess, an identity per se, that classic, you know, as you said, it's that fractional, more affordable uh, entry level market. Do you think that's, we'll see that a bit more of that separation as, as years go on? Yeah, like I think so. I mean, that sale in particular has changed a lot over the last 10 years. It's really yeah. found its niche, I think. You know, the, the the good thing about that sale in particular, as you say, you know, the horses, the, the average dropped down to 100,000 this year, but I think the results out of that sale do speak for themselves. There's always very good horses come out of it. A lot of group yeah. one winners come out of that at less than 100 grand. And it does give, you know, people an opportunity to invest in a good horse at a, at a really affordable level. You don't get the big pedigrees there, um, but you certainly get sort of nice physicals. I mean, both... Magic Millions and Inglis, you know, buying out of sale, those those two sales companies have significant advantages. I think that the um, the race day incentive for Magic Millions in particular is fantastic, and it's it's gone up to a whole another another level again next year. It's you know, I think there's probably benefit from having the first crack at people's money in January every year, but um, having a, a horse that's eligible for that race series is a significant carrot, and it's. Certainly a focus for Bjorn and I every year is to try and get our hands on as many nice horses as we can out of that sale. And Bjorn, it's been a, like the race meeting itself, the Magic Millions race day. You've had great success there in the past. Uh, you're, a, you're a personality as well as a buyer on the Gold Coast during that week of January. It's a, it's a sale that you get right around and, and really enjoy with your clients. Yeah, you do. And it's, uh, I think Jim touched on it. It's the first sale of the year and it's been very good to me, I guess, coming over and buying unencumbered. I was able to get a bit of a roll on into that sale and historically I've been able to buy good numbers, sell them successfully and, and uh, every year I tend to have a few runners that get back there. So it, it's definitely a sale that we focus on. I think it's a, a, an important sale. It's important to get a few numbers in the stable and get underway early. So um, it's it's definitely historically been the main sale for for myself and now for Jim and I, and then uh, you get into NZ and English Classic where we always try and pick up a few, and probably less active at Melbourne and, and less active at Easter. Although this year um, things are going pretty well in terms of selling, so we'll definitely be having a good look at at Melbourne and hopefully getting two or three and and Easter we probably want to ramp that up a little bit. But it's very competitive for the right horses and. Uh, there's definitely a, a few jitters in the economy, which is making some of those uh, sort of mid-range horses probably harder to sell than they have been in the past. And and uh, a lot of clients are a little bit more uh, probably circumspect and how big a percentage they want to have. And a, a lot of new clients are probably very interested in, in what the ongoing costs are. And as we know, to have a horse in training is not cheap regardless of where you are. How are you finding the, the selling down aspect of the horses that you're buying and particularly with the new clients? Is there more sort of new business this year? Has it slowed down a little bit from that? Well, it would have slowed down from the COVID uh, rush on that we saw. But yeah, generally at, at from the shop front, I guess, of your business, how's how's the selling process been? Yeah, and I guess the, our shop front and our advertising, the best advertising you can do is win races. So yeah. I say the shop front on a Saturday at, at Rose Hill or Randwick is, is worth 10 times any other race in terms of winning. Um, but it's very competitive. A, a lot of trainers now are very good at marketing. Um, you've got to be on the ball. You've got to do... Uh, 
give all the information. Um, and we're ticking along okay, but it, it definitely, I think everyone's improved that side of it. Marketing is such a key element of training racehorses now, and uh, really it is sell, 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 and and uh, it's definitely probably a change of, of old school trainers how my father used to operate, and uh, it's very competitive. So I do always say to Jim, a fully sold horse is a very good horse. It's interesting the timing that, you know, Magic Millions in English sort of have it. It's quite perfect at times, isn't it? They're very good at reading the room and interest rates going up, a few jitters in the economy, as you say. Uh, lo and behold, Magic Millions race series, we, we get a little boost and more bonuses added there. And then Inglis follows up a couple of weeks ago in unveiling the uh, $5 million maiden bonus series, the extra bonus series, which yeah, it just makes... It makes the racing game that much more appealing, doesn't it, to to fractional owners when they read about $100,000 maiden bonuses and things like this because often the hardest race to win is your first. Yeah, that's right. And, and it, it makes it more viable too. It does. And, and what drives racing? I've been in Sydney now for 12 years and it's the best move I've ever made. Uh, the stake money has continued to increase. I've probably been lucky at the right place, right time. Um, but you can put a pretty good business case forward to buy a racehorse. If you get lucky, you're not just going to have a whole heap of fun, but you can make serious money too. And um, the game throughout, through the breeding industry to the racing industry is very, very strong. With that comes a lot more competition. But um, some of these, the prize money without what Inglis and the Magic Millions have done is remarkable. So we're in a lucky position. It, It does really help give us a kick along in terms of selling and and um i'm sure if you're buying any sort of numbers you're going to be a viable chance or a realistic chance to win one of those maidens going forward jim it used to be just the ladies bonus didn't it and that's what we sort of look at with the magic millions when that came in that was innovation but these sales companies now i think there's a greater understanding of uh, the pressures that that owners have you know they they make their investment they buy their horse or they buy their share in the horse but uh, you know, it can be 12, 18 months sometimes before that horse gets to the racetrack. They're not all jump and run two-year-olds. So making it economical so that eventually we see return business, is it's so critical, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, the, the, the bonus schemes for the sales companies is a very competitive space. But I think the the concept that English has come up with, with these um, bonuses for maiden races is, is a really sort of significant step in the right direction there's been a lot of talk around you know putting you know people wanting to put pressure on the, on the racing control bodies to increase prize money for horses that win their maiden and i guess the idea behind that as you say is to try and you know winning a winning a first race for the horse is often the hardest race to win and, and i think if people are rewarded for that then they're more likely to to remain in the game um so I think this this bonus scheme from Inglis is a, is a really you know good indication that um, you know we should be emphasising that maiden prize money. Um, so I think it's it's very commendable, and I think it's going to work very well. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. 
IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. Jim, before there was Clark Bloodstock, you were a wide-eyed young man working alongside the force of nature that's Bjorn Baker. Can you take us back to your first job in racing when you were working uh, as racing and bloodstock manager for Bjorn Baker Racing? What sort of an eye-opener was it for you coming into the industry? Yeah, that was sort of when I first met you, Shark. I'd come off the Flying Start course. I was about to finish the Flying Start course and I was looking for a job. And at the time, um, Bjorn, I think he was just started his second season as a trainer in Sydney. I'd never met Bjorn. but I was introduced to him um, through another um, FBA member, actually, Andy Williams, and uh, he put me in touch with Bjorn because Bjorn was potentially looking for someone to help him. And I was fortunate enough to, to get that job with Bjorn when I finished the course. And at the time, you know, we, we were still at the stables that Bjorn trains out of now at Warwick Farm. Mm. There are about 35 horses in training. Unencumbered was was a... a, a a recent yearling purchase for Bjorn that was about to sort of kick off his two-year-old season. Um, and not long before I started, Twilight Royale and Fwaza had Quinella, the English nursery, and Fwaza had run really well in a group one two-year-old race. So I I guess I took the risk that Bjorn was going to take me somewhere. And um, thankfully, you know, after I joined the stable, we had a, a pretty good run of success, probably highlighted through unencumbered winning the Magic Moons. And, we were able to, um, well, Bjorn was able to build the business quite quickly. Uh, and I had sort of three years with him and was very involved in all aspects of it. I guess the flying start was a fantastic opportunity for me to get out and network and meet people and learn about a little bit of everything in the game. But I think um, my job for Bjorn was when I really learnt, I guess, a lot more about um, certainly the fundamentals of training a racehorse, but also running a business. So it was a big leg up. Um, you know, I was involved in everything, as, as I said, and that included attending the sales. So I went to every yearling sale. I was involved in, you know, helping Bjorn identify the horse that we wanted to buy. I was very involved in selling the shares and, and even everything from the accounting side of the business was, was all, I guess, a big leg up for me for, for what I've ended up doing as an agent. How how much of a culture shock or a, or a reality check, I guess is probably the better word, was it for you coming out of the Flying Start program where you're going all over the world, you're seeing the elite operations, you're probably exposed to a lot of top-end uh, business that is established and it's off and rolling, and then you get that job and you're at the coalface, you're working, you're selling. Was, it a, was there a bit of a, a shock? for you between, you know, the, the experience in the course versus the reality of the, the work the workplace? Yeah, massively. Um, you know, I was back. I, I remember the first six months of my job there, and Bjorn's probably going to pull me up here, but it, it was <laughs> it was very intense. You know, we were working very long hours. It was a track work pretty much every morning for 4 a.m. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Jimbo. He was, sleeping in. He was well, sleeping in, wasn't he? 
um, Jim. Bjorn was nowhere to be seen, probably. Yeah, I was, I was actually there running the ship. Bjorn was in bed. No, that's not true. But um, <laughs> uh, I was, I was, uh, I was at track work. Certainly in that first year, probably a, a bit more than I was in the final year of my time with Bjorn. And he always jokes. He's had a few racing managers since me, and um, you know, I think he tells people I was like a six furlong sprinter, and Jack Bruce was like a two mile hurdler. You know, I'd get in there at six and finish at three and punch out a heap of work, and Jack would be there doing fourteen hour days. So it was, um, but yeah, look, it was uh, it was a great experience. It was very much as you say back at the coal face, and um, you know, I, I think working with with the high end, very valuable bloodstock, good off and all over the world was fantastic. Um, I was subsequently, you know, fortunate enough to go back and work for them in a senior role after I finished with Bjorn. But, um, you know, my time with Bjorn, we were buying yearlings for 40, 50, 60 grand, you know, unencumbered winning Rupert. And, and the two I mentioned earlier, Twilight Royale and Flores, were all fairly cheap buys. They were bought by Bjorn, not by me. But, um, you know, we were, we were certainly dealing with a, a different level or a different, um, you know, pedigreed horse when I worked for Bjorn than compared to Godolphin. But, as I said, the learning experience from my time there was was invaluable. Yeah, and is that is that the uh, the time? I guess yeah, you have somebody like Jim on that you kind of realise that as a trainer you can't be everywhere doing everything. That you need that good assistance. You need the support around you. You need somebody who knows their their horses inside and out to be across your your bloodstock and your and your clients. It's it's definitely a seven day a, a week um, game and it is full on and I've just oh Jimmy he never missed whether it be the dentist doctor uh, here at eleven a.m. every every Thursday he's out the door but he had to leave at about ten he is very good at getting some key appointments at critical moments Jimbo weren't you hey eh? oh, I don't think so I think you're exaggerating <laughs> and he you did. Do it. He Usually those appointments are the, scheduled the, Monday the mornings. Mental, yeah, he struggled a bit with the mental toll of it uh, coming to Warwick Farm Penitentiary and took him a few weeks to settle in. He had a few emotional moments, didn't you, Jimbo, occasionally when you kicked off? Yeah, well, I can tell you the hardest job I've had in racing is working with Ben Baker. So. <laughs> no, but we had, we had a lot of fun. Uh, we, went to, we remember that time we went down to the bet fair function and Glenn McGrath was there. <laughs> I remember it, I don't think you remember too much of it. <laughs> we had, I said, tell him that what happened the next morning. The next morning, we woke up for our flight. Well, I woke up and um, I went in to get Bjorn. I said, Right, we need, we need to go to the airport. He said, What time's I? Our flight was at eight o'clock. He said, "What time's it now?" I said, "Eight <laughs> forty-five." He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't exactly in the good books at home. I can tell you. Well, of course, yeah. you know a lot of hard work in early mornings. You get one way, one uh, couple of nights away from the office, and you have a sleep in. That's what it would have been. Yeah. Correct. Yeah, we're just catching up, catching up on a bit of uh, lost sleep. But no, in all seriousness, we had a great time. We had a, a good few years together. And obviously, Jim, when he went back to the UK, was was a big loss. And uh, um, yeah, it's, it's funny how it's worked out pretty well. Well, he's back now and he opens up his own shop front as a bloodstock agent in his own right. And you must have seen something in him day to day while he was working for you to 
to to put your faith in him when he when he started his own business because you've you've bought a lot of horses together uh, since Clark Bloodstock's been up and going and you must have real faith and trust in in Jim's eye. Yeah, and uh, we've we've definitely had the highs and lows. Probably like anyone buying bloodstock, it's not easy. And as we all know, it's it's far from an exact science. There's only one rule with horses. There are no rules, and um, no, it's worked out really well. Jim's organised. He's sharp. He's dedicated, and and just with the workload as a trainer in Sydney, it, it is really seven days a week. And I just simply don't have the time to to look at all the yearlings and. And Jim also has bought, uh, built a, a great rapport with my clients and he works closely with Alicia and um, it all works together. It's a team environment and at the end of the day, it's a team game. You can't do it yourself. So um, from that point of view, I think we've got a, a good bunch of really loyal clients. I think the quality of blood stock we're buying has definitely improved and uh, and you need it too with the extra prize money Sydney racing's never been more competitive but I'm very confident in the next year or two we'll we'll continue to get some really good results what's the biggest challenge for you as a trainer today and and you're a well-known trainer you've had really good success uh but it's it, I imagine it wouldn't be just walk up start for you you've, you've got to go out and schmooze clients it, it's hard work day to day despite your success to this point yeah, it doesn't stop, and and uh, you've only got to be at Warwick Farm and come out one morning and have a look at the quality of bloodstock there. We've got obviously Godolphin there. We've got Chris Waller, who's been there for a while with a small stable. Uh, you've had Annabelle Neesham come in, uh, Kieran Ma and David Eustace are a lot more prominent than they were. You've got uh, Matthew Smith, he's got more competitive. Gary Portelli keeps pumping out two-year-old winners. Joe Pride. Uh, I've got David Pfeiffer, my neighbour, who's going particularly well at the moment. It's it's so competitive, and that's just in our backyard at Warwick Farm without going into into Rose Hill or Randwick. So it's it's not a game you can relax and think, oh, I'm going well or I'm competitive. I'm, I'm the hardest judge on myself. And uh, I think Jim's the same. We, we need results, and without results, you're... You just can't remain viable when you can't be competitive in Sydney, which, which I think week in, week out, is, if it's not the toughest racing in the world, um, it's not far off. And, and Melbourne is obviously very, very similar. It's tough going week in, week out, and the depth and quality of horses makes it sort of an ongoing challenge. You, you can never sit back and think, how good's this? Because you've got to keep moving. You need more horses, and you need better quality horses to compete. So, Jim, obviously, you've got to get the results for the client and you know, it can be a little bit of a lag time from purchase to performance to, to see those results. But what sort of things do you do as an agent to try and ensure and ensure that uh, you get the best possible horses? Is it just, you know, I guess it's simple, you buy the right horse, but is it the extra, extra research that goes on sort of away from inspection time that you can use to, to get an edge? Yeah, I guess, you know, going back to Bjorn saying he's sort of full-time at the stables and training his horses, that's probably what really opened the gap for me to go and do what I do. I mean, when I came back from Europe and, and was looking for the next challenge, Bjorn, you know, was buying more and more yearlings every year. And he said to me, look, if you want to be involved and help me buy my yearlings, then, you know, that's a good place for me to start my business. And he was very adamant, though, that, that you know, he would be a client of mine, but I really had to build 
um, you know, build on, on that. I couldn't just rely on, on Bjorn and Bjorn's work to, to run a viable business. But, you know, starting off my first year, and I, I guess I'm big on looking back and seeing, you know, what went right, what went wrong, what I can improve and what I can do differently. And as you say, there is a lag time. So, you know, the first crop of yearlings that I ever bought for Bjorn, we, I think we bought seven at the Magic Millions and we didn't have a whole lot of luck with them. You know, in fact, three of them, you know, died through various reasons very early on, just accidents and, and things that, you know, we couldn't um, couldn't have been foreseen at the time. Dynamic Impact came out of that crop, though, and he's been a good older horse, but it's it's only been the last 12 months, really, that, you know, you could say that, you know, you I managed to buy a nice horse out of that first crop. So there is a lag time, but you're always reflecting and looking at, at, at what you may have done right, what you may have done wrong, and what you can improve. And I guess... What I bring to the table for Bjorn is, you know, I'm fully dedicated to looking at every horse and all the, the major sales. I spent a lot more time, you know, researching pedigrees, looking at statistics of stallions, looking at the, you know, the results from specific stud farms, being very on, on point with valuing yearlings in particular. But I guess not just yearlings, we buy a few European horses as well, but... Yeah, there's a lot more than goes into it than lobbing up to the sales, walking around, looking at things that you might like or dislike and putting your hand up. There's a there's a fair bit of administration, research, sort of bloodstock data that I go through behind the scenes leading into and during the yearling sales. And, you know, a lot of my um, sort of colleagues on the FBAA were all doing the same version of a different thing. Um, everyone does operate slightly differently. Everyone does operate in, in different markets. Um, but yeah, certainly the yearling sales is a major focus for all of us. And, um, you know, we, when it, when we get into souring, we're all essentially competing with each other to try and buy, buy the right horse. So any edge you can get from, from data or, or, or your research is, is certainly advantageous. One of the interesting stats that I think we hear spoken about more often, probably in the last few years, has been around farms and their record at, at producing you know, good horses, winners and, and stakes winners. What sort of work do you do or how closely do you pay attention to that statistic? You know, particular farms got a great strike rate with stakes winners or or not so good strike rate at stakes winners. Will that will that give you more in the tank to buy a particular horse from them or perhaps on the flip side to maybe give another one a bit of a wide berth? Yeah, I mean, it's something I think, you know, in this game, it's like any industry, you're always learning and you're always trying to um, improve. And I think, you know, reflecting back when I first started, I was very much, um, you know, I was going to the sales looking for, for, for a unicorn. You know, I was trying to buy the perfect physical. I didn't put as much emphasis on pedigree. Um, and I probably wasn't overly tuned up with, with breeders and farms and, and, and their results. And that's, probably you know a reflection of the fact that i'd spent four years in europe and and wasn't monitoring australian sales and australian race results religiously every day but over the last four or five years since i, I did start my agency i'm a lot more in tune with that and i probably put a lot more emphasis on it um you know it's like anything i think you know horses that have had been given the best start in life raised in the best pastures um, been handled properly, been been educated properly in those early years. It certainly makes a difference. Um, you know, there's no hard and fast rules, but it's certainly um, always encouraging to know when you've bought a yearling or, or a horse that's been bred by a very successful breeder and raised on a, on a very good farm, then I think it, it does certainly count for something, that's for sure. 
it's another layer to the the form study that's so prevalent in the industry anyway you know everyone's doing the form on a saturday trying to find the winner and look for some sort of marker that can predict who's going to come out and win a particular race it's it's exactly the same theory isn't it really it's just the information's uh a little bit different yeah and i mean i i take the approach in everything that i do that you know, first and foremost, you're trying to buy the best possible horse you can. You know, you're trying to buy the group one winner. Um, but a lot of what we do is is you're shaving off as much risk as possible. I think anyone that's owned horses would know that things can go wrong, um, whether it be injury or, or, or something else. But, you know, you're trying to put as many of the variables in your corner as well, whether that be physique, stallion, female family, the farm you've bought off, Um you know, the produce record of the mayor, whatever it may be. There's so many different pieces of the puzzle that go into identifying a good racehorse. And ultimately my job and, and certainly what I do for Bjorn is 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 I, I try and make sure that we're um, putting many as many of those as many of those variables in our corner as we can. I you know, I think the people that go around the yearling sales would know that Alan Frogley, Bjorn's vet, spends a lot of time with me at the sales and um you know, he's very involved when we get down to doing sort of our second and final inspections and he would be very strict on confirmation. I think that's a reflection of him being in the stable with Bjorn every morning, trotting horses up and, and knowing what, um, you know, I guess what as a trainer Bjorn can live with and, and what, um, you know, we may be better avoiding. Yeah, Bjorn, how important is the, the veterinary process for your selection process? Will it... Will it absolutely stop you from buying a particular horse if there's an, an issue that your vet says he can't live with? Oh, I love a discount, Sharky. <laughs> I mean, discount a, a bandage or, or x-rays that we can live with, whereas a lot of others won't, obviously. And and the, often you're competing with, with whether they're Hong Kong purchases, but sometimes uh, there might be a horse that would be suspect to get into Hong Kong with the x-rays, but... Uh, we can manage and of course Alan's a big part of my team and you've only got to come to trot up some Thursday morning and look at all the horses they're all, all shapes and sizes some move completely different to others and um, yeah there's no there's definitely no no set rules when you look at a large contingent of horses going up and no Alan's a, a very good man he, he used to be a jockey did you know that he rode six winners from about 900 rides I think he, he was Smart enough to realise he had a limited career and then he became a vet. Is that a bit like your pharmacy career? Well, I, I say he's the worst cross in racing and he said, no, I'm not on the second worst because the pharmacist turned, turned horse trainers the worst. So we <laughs> always have a, have a good laugh about it. But uh, no, he's definitely an important cog in the system and um, he's a, a realist. He's been around for a long time and... He's uh, very, very important for my stable, and I, I think he's been a great help to both Jim and I. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible, long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at The Stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. 
IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Have a look at your couple of your, well, one horse in particular I wanted to ask you about, uh, Overpass. How far away is he from sort of coming back for the autumn and, and what races are you targeting with this fella? Yeah, well, as we, as we talk about him, he, um, he's having his first gallop on the grass tomorrow and he's coming along really well. We're looking at trialling probably early March and then maybe sort of mid to late March with the big aim of, of going into the TJ Smith probably first up. Um, he always runs well first up. Uh, last autumn, he won the expressway first up and then um, in the spring he was second to nature strip in the shorts and he went a mighty race then so I'm absolutely thrilled with him he's been gelded and he looks fantastic and I'm um, pretty confident he, he's definitely going to run well even if he goes to a race like the TJ Smith I think he'll be competitive he did run six in the Everest and I think one thing we probably learned from last time is he's definitely better probably fresh one and second thing is he's he's definitely better suited at the sprint distances. So is that gelded since his last preparation? He's been gelded since his last prep, and uh, you've got to be a realist. And I, I guess a lot of the listeners on here, he's he's not going to have a whole heap of commercial appeal. And and with the stake money and prize money so good, uh, we're much better off having a racehorse for the, the hopefully the next four or five seasons all going well. So have you seen you know often. Colts are gelded and you see an improvement in attitude or uh, or focus. Has there been any tangible improvement in overpass since he had the snip? Oh, he's, he's definitely probably a little bit more laid back. Um, and he's just, his mannerisms have definitely improved. So I think there's been a, an improvement at this stage and um, coming into the big races, I guess when he trials, we'll get, get a bit more of an idea. But I'm absolutely thrilled with how he looks. Looks, I think he's he's um, in great order. That's for sure. Can you give us another name or two to follow throughout the uh, the upcoming carnival in Sydney? Well, I think we're talking about. I've got two big sprinters, and you always <laughs> every Saturday comes round. You you want them running, but sometimes patience works. Um, and Shades of Right, she tried this morning. Yeah. Um, of course, she ran. Eighth in the Everest last year. She is a really exciting mare, and and she's definitely come back bigger and stronger. And it, her preparation under the spring last year it was only her second ever preparation. So I've got no doubt she's going to be a better mare this time in, and we'll go to a race uh, like the Galaxy first up. She should get no weight, and I think she'll be very very competitive. She loves Rose Hill, and uh, she loves the eleven hundred. Two other horses I just wanted to ask you about while we've got you. Arapaho, that was a fantastic first up run the other day, and he it might be the coming of age sort of prep for him. He's been very consistent for you, but he on that run you'd have to give him a great chance going towards the Sydney Cup. Yeah, he's he's actually well. Jim bought him, and and he was particularly well bought with his form um, from France, right? Sort of when COVID kicked off, and he's taken a couple of preps to find his niche. But he did a remarkable job last year. He was fifteenth up in the Melbourne Cup, believe it or not. So I'm hopeful after a bit of a break, uh, he's come back better than ever. But his first up run was good. He'll go to the Chipping Norton 
this Saturday. It'll still be short of his best, but um, he's going really well and he's a, a very consistent horse. Jim, he was a listed winner, Rappahoe, at Longchamp, and he runs sixth in the French Guineas uh, to Victor Ladorum. So he showed really good ability over those shorter distances. But did you expect when you bought him to see him out stretching into a Melbourne Cup sort of distance? No, not at all. So he's an interesting horse, actually. He was bred by Andre Favre's wife. Um, right. And when I used to work at Godolphin, we'd often be offered horses that Andre had bred. Um, and we did quite well with a few of them. Um, we had a horse horse with a weird name called Jimmy Two Times that, that um, wasn't a bad horse by Ken Darjean that was bred by Mrs. Farb. And I noticed um, Arapaho was in a um, a mixed sale in France, a sort of tried horse sale in Arcana at the back end of November a few years ago. And it was during COVID. Um, and after his first couple of runs, I think Coolmore had purchased him potentially as a stallion prospect. And, He'd run through some good races in his three-year-old season, but he'd only really run up to as far as a mile. He ran a pretty credible race in the French Guineas when midfield, and I think by the end of his three-year-old season, he wasn't a stallion prospect for Coolmore, so he was in an online auction. And I, I've sort of got good relationships with a few agents in Europe from my time there, and, and I was um, doing a lot of work with Mark McStay, who's a, a good guy and a former colleague of mine at Godolphin. And, we had a lot of people involved in trying to buy this horse because the borders were closed. Mark couldn't get to France. The vet couldn't get to France. So we relied on another French guy to look at him for us. And we had uh, a French vet read his x-rays. And anyway, we managed to He jumped through the hurdles and, and we were able to buy him for, you know, what at the time was quite a bit of money, but I think relatively was, was always turned out to be quite good buying, but he ran well as Bjorn said, his first prep, he ran in a couple of decent races and, um, without troubling the scorer. But uh, I remember the first and only time Bjorn's tipped me was when he ran the Tamworth Cup and he sat third on the fence behind the speed and Bjorn said, the more you put on, the more you get back. He was win. Well, he ran last that day and 14 starts, 13 starts later, he ran 12th in a Melbourne, 11th in a Melbourne Cup. So it's, um, yeah, he's got an interesting story. He had a very interesting prep last year, but I think, you know, full credit to Bjorn. It was an unorthodox preparation having that many runs. But, you know, if you go through his form, he just kept on improving. He thrived on racing. And I think, you know, as a European horse, they do stay in training all year. They don't have three months, two months spells like, like we do here. So I think it was something the horse was used to and it certainly worked for him. It's interesting. I'm looking at that Tamworth Cup uh, form guide in front of me. So Bandersnatch won the Tamworth Cup that day. 22nd of April, that was my birthday last year. He, so Arapaho was, or it's my birthday every year, actually. He was beaten 14.8 lengths, Arapaho. He was $16 out to $20. So you might have been backing him, but nobody else was. And uh, they ran time that day, Bjorn, for the 1,400. 120 flat they ran. I think they ran a national record. It was a good, the track was about a good 0.5. And he just never stretched out. Then we went to, I think the race after that, we ended up going to Hawkesbury. He was 80 to one and an 1800 meter race or 50 to one anyway. And on a wet track. And I gave him a show that day too, but he, he ran fourth. And then he went to Rose Hill on a, a very wet track and won by about 10. So yeah, it's funny how it's worked out. One, one by, one by 7.6 lengths at 20 to one. Jim, please tell me you followed up. Didn't have a penny on. 
That's the way it goes. I had a feeling. Well, I think Carl there. Holt might have backed him that day, so <laughs> it's more important that he backs him than I do. So, who backed him? I think Carl Holt might have had a dollar on him that day. Yeah, I think he gave him a chance. I didn't ever send on. Now, Bjorn, I know you're a very busy man. You've you've probably got a uh, pedicure or a teeth whitening appointment or something like that. So you're looking nice and preened for the races on the weekend. But before we let you go, it would it would be remiss of me. Uh, if I didn't ask for a pearl of wisdom from you, if there's any young aspiring horse trainers out there listening to this podcast and they're a fan of yours, what what advice would you give a young person sitting listening to this that wanted to be a horse trainer? Uh, wow, that's interesting. But really, you, you do have to be a jack of all trades and the more you can master, the better because there's a big business element to it now. Um, very much so, and a big marketing element to it as well. So you've got to have a pretty good understanding of those two things to, to really be a commercial trainer in Sydney. And, and as well as that, you've got to be open to hard work and know the basics with horses. And I'm happy to help out any young trainer. Uh, they can come to Warwick Farm. We've got unlimited boxes for minimum wage, and that's where you start. You've got to be good on the boxes, and that's why Jim became a bloodstock agent instead of a horse trainer because he's never much good at mucking out, Jimbo, were you? I disagree. I was very, very good. I could sleep in the boxes. Oh, 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 those moccasins never saw a, one ounce of sawdust on them in Jim's four oh. years with me. <laughs> I, re- I reckon finding a finding a good mate who knows his stuff too, Bjorn, like uh, like Jim, probably a good help for a young trainer as well, wouldn't it be? Finding a good agent, yeah. Well, yeah, and then in fairness, you need a bit of luck when you kick off, and uh, that's the key to it. Touch wood, I, I was lucky, probably, and that's when you need it the most. And I was lucky to get unencumbered early days. I had another horse called. Um, Havana Rain. I think Jim touched on Twilight Royale, so it does help. It definitely helps to to you need a bit of luck. So yeah, it's a tough game, but we all love it and uh, we'll keep at it. And there's no bigger thrill than being involved in a winner with your own at training or even back it. Well, gentlemen, I wish you all the best of luck for the upcoming Group One races, and and thanks very much for your time today on your shortlist. Thank you, Jim, and thank you, Bjorn. Thanks, Sharky. Thanks, Jimbo. No worries. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. And thanks, everyone, for listening to the shortlist. And remember, if you'd like to talk bloodstock with an expert, make sure you visit bloodstockagents.com.au or give Bjorn Baker a ring. Get in touch with somebody who knows what they're doing, who is an expert in their field.